Okay, time for our message this morning. Uh, And this morning we are looking at Micah chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 6 to 8 this morning. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. And the question uh, for this morning is, what does the Lord require? What does the Lord require? We'll be looking at that that question over this week and next week. It's in two parts, this uh, message, and I pray that it's a uh, a blessing to you. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 says, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow before uh, the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Uh, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray, uh, Lord, that as we look into your word now, that you'd be our teacher and our guide. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that our hearts would be fertile ground for that seed to be sown there, that it might take root, might grow and uh, bear fruit, that would help us to grow and mature as Christians, and that would give you glory as our Heavenly Father, that we might be lights that shine in this world, we might be the salt of the earth, that we might be useful, uh, Lord, for your sake that we might reach the people of this world to help them understand that the God of this universe loves them and has sent his son to save them. Bless my, uh, my talk this morning, Lord. Bless the words that I speak. I pray that everything I say would be according to your will. And Father, everything I say uh, would come simply from you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when people look at Christianity from the outside, sometimes they might look at it as a complicated uh, system of rules, regulations and uh, traditions. Um, they might also look at the inconsistency of Christians in, in the church or people who call themselves Christians. They might look at their lifestyle and look at the message that they're uh, uh, presenting uh, to the world and, uh, and determine or come to the conclusion that the, world is, uh, the church is filled with hypocrisy. And uh, I've heard that excuse used many times by people um, who then say, who then uses it as, as an excuse for not believing in God at all. Um, as if hypocrisy or the hypocrisy of man is somehow a valid reason to reject the existence of God himself. Um, but excuses like this really don't mean much uh, if you look at it. Um, when the same people who say, oh, I can't possibly believe in a God because there's hypocrisy in the church. Or I, see, I don't see uh, God's people, uh, you know, do exactly the way they say. Um, these same people put their faith in human institutions. They, they put their faith in other people's teachings or ideologies. They might put their faith in a political party or charity group or association or any other human endeavor. And why do I say that doesn't mean much because they do the same thing? Because every human institution is also filled with people that are hypocrites and people that fail and people who are insincere. So there is, there is no institution, there is no group, there is no association in this world that is not um, uh, tainted by man's insincerity or hypocrisy. In fact, what's interesting is that the people who might point the finger at Christians and say, oh, hypocrite, hypocrite, um, therefore I can't be part of, uh, of that particular group, uh, are probably hypocrites themselves. They aren't really being intellectually honest when they reject Christianity or Christ because of faulty Christians. But people make excuses all the time, though. I mean, outside the church and, unfortunately, inside the church as well. Human nature is, by its very nature, self-deceptive. It's amazing that modern psychology accepts this, accepts this premise and spends much of its time trying to show people how much they're actually lying to themselves. So much of, much of the time that people spend with psychologists and psychiatrists are them trying to pull out what the truth is that's sort of uh, floating around somewhere inside someone's mind. 
can psychology and, and, and the psychiatry cure human nature? Of course not. They can't. They can, they can at most uh, reveal one thing, but the underlying problem is always still there. Psychologists themselves are self-deceiving. Uh, they, they only see within themselves what they want to see as well. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, as we look at what the Bible says about our own hearts or what the average human heart is like. And if we understand what the human heart is like, if we come to the conclusion and accept what the Bible says about the human heart, um, then we stand a very good chance of allowing God to teach us and to show us what the, what the, um, the, the, the cure is for it, what the solution is for that. So Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, simply says that the heart, that's a human heart, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Not just a little bit wicked. It's desperately wicked and it's deceitful. And who does it deceive most of all? Well, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time deceiving other people, okay? Putting on some sort of a front or pretending to be something that they're really not. Um, and there's plenty of evil things that go on in the world. But most of the deception takes place within the actual person. The, the, the heart's greatest uh, um, victory in deceit is deceiving the individual within whom that heart resides. And the question here is, who can know it? As much as they might try, a psychiatrist can't know it. A psychiatrist just sees the, the result at the end of it. If they did, they wouldn't be prescribing so much medication and drugs to try and manage it. But the good news for us in the next verse is that there is one who actually knows mankind's heart or knows our hearts. And it tells us in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. It's God who knows our hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. You know, when we go to a, a, a doctor, if you, um, uh, if you go to a, uh, if you have some sort of an ailment uh, and you don't know where it's coming from, you may have a particular pain uh, somewhere, you go to the doctor and the doctor then sends, you might send you for some x-rays or send you for some other scan somewhere and they can see inside and determine what might be there. Well, the reason you go to a doctor, you go to a, 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 someone like that who then sends you for scans is because they can see something that you can't. You may be experiencing the pain of it, but you can't see exactly what's going on inside you. But through the wonders of modern technology, they can see inside us and determine with a fair degree of, of certainty what, what's going on in there. And God is like that with our hearts. Unfortunately, the human, human nature is, is not something we can take out a, uh, an x-ray machine and take an image of. Can't do a CT scan of it or an MRI scan and, 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 and look at what's really going on within our hearts because what we have going on in there is not just a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. But thank God that he says that he searches the heart. He scans the heart and he comes up with the exact picture of what's going on. He knows exactly uh, what our hearts are like. And he says, what I see there is deception. What I see there is desperate wickedness. In this short passage that we'll be examining uh, over, the next, uh, over these two weeks, the deception of man's heart is laid bare. God shows exactly what's going on there and shares what he wants us to do and what he doesn't want us to do as a result of that. Especially for those who say they believe in God. Despite people making belief in God more complicated than what he makes it, God reveals the simplicity of a healthy relationship with him. You see, because this is the real meaning of existence is having a relationship with the high God, as he says, of this universe. Because this passage begins with a very important question. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? 
You know, in the old days, if you were to approach a king, or even now, if you were to approach a king, you just can't walk into Windsor Castle, for instance, uh, with your, your tracksuit on and, uh, and expect uh, to have an audience with the queen. It doesn't work like that. If that's true for worldly monarchs, then what about the king of the universe? What about the God, the high God, the creator of all things? How should we approach him? What, in what manner should we come before him? Well, God um, reveals how he doesn't want us to come before him. We'll be looking at that today. And then he tells us exactly how we are to prepare ourselves if we are to come before him and bow ourselves before this high God whom we serve. As Christians, the most important thing we have the most important thing in our our list of priorities in our entire life the most important thing should be our relationship with god the way i am with god how i approach god it's the most important thing that we should treasure there is nothing else that we have which is more important than our relationship with god and that relationship if you're a christian this morning is through jesus christ so we'll be looking at that in a bit more in depth next week but this week we're looking at or going to be focusing on what god does not like and how he does not want people to approach him let me give you a bit of a background to this book though because it helps us to understand the message we're looking at in this particular passage so we're looking at uh, micah as a prophet so micah was a, a prophet in the in the days of king jotham ahaz and hezekiah his ministry uh though was to even though it was to both uh, northern and southern kingdoms, to Israel and to Judah, it was mainly focused on Judah because he came from uh, Judah originally. Um, the message of this book uh, is about the sinfulness of Israel and Judah and their idolatry. Their insistence on mixing idolatry, the idolatry of Baal, and you'd be familiar with that name, because when the Canaanites, when, sorry, when the Israelites came into Canaan, um, they they came across people who worshipped this particular god called Baal. Uh, and they also worshipped uh, another uh, goddess called uh, Asherah or Ashtaroth. And there was another nasty god in the middle of all that called Moloch. Okay? And these, and these uh, people who worshipped these gods did some pretty atrocious things. And God told his people, when you go into this land, the land that I'm giving you, I want you to drive these people away. I don't want you mixing with them. I don't want you um, uh, making friends with them because these people are doing some atrocious things. And what they're doing will influence you and will, and will actually draw you away from me. Um, what did Israel do? Well, they did the very thing that God warned them against and in fact told them what would happen if they did that. They mixed, they began mixing the worship of Baal and Asherah and even Molech with the worship of God. What they tried to then do is try to have one and the other. They wanted to have both. They thought they could keep God happy by doing some of his stuff keep Baal happy by doing some of his stuff, keep Asherah happy by doing some of her stuff, and they could come up with their own uh, little concoction um, that would suit them. God's warning to them was this wasn't how he wanted it. He warned them about it, and he said, I'm, there's judgment coming to you if you continue to go along this path. This book is a warning to Judah, which had to a certain degree managed to avoid idolatry, the idolatry of Israel. And later uh, Israel fell to Assyria and was taken away captive. But Judah later fell into the same sins. And God warned them ahead of time that if you continue along this path, you're going to be falling into the same sins as well. While Micah prophesied that eventually Babylon would come and, um, and come against Judah, the people of Judah failed to take him seriously because it was Assyria that was the world power at that time, and Babylon was under Assyria, um, and they, they felt, oh, that's ridiculous. 
how can Babylon uh, be a threat to us when Assyria is the world power? Uh, but God knew exactly who would come first and who would come second. And God knows what's coming ahead of time. As Judah felt safe and they felt prosperous in that state that they were in, they were pretty wealthy as a country. They seemed to have peace around them and they became apathetic towards the things of God and to God himself. Their relative wealth and peacefulness convinced them that they really had it all together with the system that they'd created. A system that suited their own requirements and didn't suit God's requirements. Why am I sharing this with you? Because today's world is much like Israel and Judah. Much of the world finds itself in a situation where genuine biblical truths have been mixed with this world's idolatry. The same idols exist in people's lives. You know, there might not be statues of Baal and Asherah or Molech being brought around by people and being bowed to, down to by people, but people still have idols in their lives. There are still idols worshipped around the world anyway, still made of wood and gold and silver and those sorts of things. But the West, which is what we're familiar with, has replaced wooden idols with other idols. Idols such as technology, entertainment, convenience, greed, lust, pornography, selfishness, money, career, fortune, lies, apathy. Now, the old gods of wood and stone and metal are still worshipped um, in some places in the world. Um, in the West, they're worshipped because of the wealth that they can bring and the power that they bring with them as well. Those things are all very valuable things. Whether it's stone, wood or metal, gold or silver, those things are still precious. People make money from those things. So instead of bowing down to those things, they bow down to them in different ways because they can receive power and, um, and wealth through them. They just do it in a slightly different way. And we live in a world where people are taught that self-love is the most important love of all, where people's most important idol is the character that they're seeking to create on social media, where people are quick to cut down and cut out anyone who may disagree with their political or ideological views, where the term bubble is the cocoon in which people live and filter out anything that they may disagree with in their view of the world, in case it just may burst their very carefully crafted uh, world. There is little difference between the idolatry of Judah or Israel and our current days. Just slightly different. And this book, in fact, of Micah, is in fact not just a pronouncement of judgment against Israel and Judah, it's in fact a pronouncement of judgment against the whole world. If you go back to Micah chapter 1 with me, we'll read the opening passage and you'll see that this is not just for Israel, not just for Judah. In fact, it's for the whole world. Micah chapter 1 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came unto Micah, the Morishite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that are therein is. And let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. I'll just... Stop it just there because there's a lot more. You can read in your own time if you'd like to read more later on. The prophecies in Micah have their fulfillment in Judah and Israel. Um, as we see in history, in the books of history, when Israel uh, took away, sorry, when uh, Assyria uh, invaded uh, Israel in the north and took them away captive. And then later Babylon invaded Judah in the south. So we find a fulfillment already in, in, uh, in history, but the prophecies concerning God's judgment are for the whole earth, 
and they are yet to be fulfilled. While Israel and Judah were guilty of even sacrificing their children to Molech to gain favour and blessings, the world is doing the same now, just at a much grander scale. The babies in our day are not sacrificed on an altar in a fire to a, to a heathen god. Um, the babies that are sacrificed in our days don't even get a chance to see the light of day, nor to breathe their first breath before they're sacrificed on an altar called convenience. And just to put this in perspective for you, while the coronavirus is currently taking about 6,000 lives per day, which is a right cause for concern, 6,000 people dying every day. It's terrible. Yet every day, 120,000 babies are aborted before they're born. Or should we uh, use the correct term, murdered? Murdered by their own parents. And no one will ever know their name. No one will ever know what lovely character they may have grown up to be like. That, That child never had a chance to experience love or anything else that we enjoy. No one will ever know their name except the God who will one day take vengeance for them. And this sin that we see in our world, now mind you, 120,000 babies a day, a day, are aborted, are murdered. For pretty much 95% just for convenience. This sin that people do in the name of convenience, like most other sins, comes off the back of another sin called adultery, which is sex outside of marriage. You see, most abortions occur with people who aren't married, aren't looking to have a family, but they're looking to have a good time. So pleasure is the God that they're serving. And then when something happens, such as a pregnancy, they have a choice to make. In much of the world, Sex before and outside of marriage is perfectly acceptable and even encouraged. Yet the countless countless young lives that are destroyed by this are never counted. People like like to blame God and I, 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 I mean, you guys know me. I like to laugh at most things because I find people very foolish most of the time. And we are funny with the things that we do. And I find it funny that people like to blame God whenever a natural disaster takes place or a pandemic breaks out. And the first thing they do is they point at God and say, why did God allow this? Why does God allow certain things to happen in our world? Why does God allow babies to die of starvation or children to die of starvation? Why does God allow all these different things? I like the way they put that. As if God somehow is, uh, he owes it to us um, that he has to step in at every point and stop every little person doing the wrong thing. But yet they'll never answer, what about their own sins? Do they want God to stop, to come in and intervene and stop their own personal sins? No, no one wants God to to intervene in their free will. Of course they don't. They want God to intervene in other people's free will. And people like to blame God whenever things go wrong. But the sins and atrocities of mankind are laid bare before the God of the universe. He sees all the things that go on. He sees the hypocrisy of mankind. And while COVID-19 takes 6,000 people per day, at the moment, at this particular moment, starvation will kill 30,000 people today. Starvation. Starvation. Someone dying because they can't eat enough. Think of that for a moment. Well, there's almost a billion people who are undernourished in the world. There's almost double the amount that are overweight. And while 6,000 people die a day of COVID-19, 
starvation will kill 30,000 people each and every day. So by the next, the next, by this time tomorrow, 30,000 people have died of malnutrition. And while one, peop, one billion people almost are undernourished in the world, the world, the people of the world, the same people that point the finger at God, spend $1 billion a day and more on illegal drugs. The same people that would point the finger at God spend over $1 billion every day to buy drugs to give themselves a high. Now, if that's not the picture of hypocrisy, I don't know what actually is. The same time, they will smoke over 1 billion cigarettes every day. They will consume billions of litres of alcohol. And yet, there are 30,000 people dying each and every day. In fact, by this time of the year, 3.5 million people have already died of starvation. And while three and a half million people have already died of starvation, and people, other people have been spending a billion dollars every day on making themselves feel good, the governments of this world have already spent $544 billion on buying weapons. Now, you just have to wonder that when people point the finger at God, Where does most of the suffering come from in this world? It's a marvel that people would even dare to point a finger at the Creator when the overwhelming reason of suffering in this world is because of the greed and the sinfulness of man. Essentially because of man's idolatry. The amount of people that die in this world don't come predominantly from natural disasters. They come from things that can be sorted out. But because of man's idolatry, he blames God. God doesn't come, come anywhere close to killing, if God did, through natural disasters. And if we, if we go through and scan through the rest of the Ten Commandments, we find that mankind, when it comes to sin and idolatry, is not slowing down, but speeding up and finding more and more novel ways of sinning. So whether it's murder, rape, thefts, lying, covetousness, witchcraft, and so on, these aren't slowing down. These are actually getting increasing. God is less worshipped. If you look at the Ten Commandments, because the, the first three are based around worshipping him, parents are less honoured, and the truth is less valued in our world than ever before. In our world, consensus wins. The majority wins. And the majority is the determiner of what truth is. That's such a dangerous place to be in. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 9, verse 18, please. Revelation chapter 9, verse 18. As God forecasts what mankind will be like in the last days when God does pour out his judgment upon man from heaven. And we find something interesting. So these are, these are the very last days. These are the last, last almost three and a half years. Um, while God is pouring his judgment upon the planet, um, Getting, trying to get people's attention that they need to turn back to him because time's running out. The clock is ticking and his judgment and he'll be returning soon. Revelation chapter 9 verse 18 says, but by these, uh, by these three, which are the three plagues, was the third part of men killed. So a third of the whole planet killed by fire and by smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents, and their heads, uh, and with them they do hurt. Now listen to these words. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, now after one third of the whole planet is dead, repented 
yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, <clears throat> which neither can see nor hear nor walk. And thank you, Alan, for sharing that message with us this morning. Verse 21. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Now you might look at those and say, all right, murders, yeah, I know. Fornication, yeah, well, it's at six outside of marriage. Yeah, I know. Thefts, no, I know. But sorceries? What, what are sorceries? Well, sorceries have everything to do with using chemicals to actually create a transcendent state. In fact, the word sorceries in the Greek is pharmakia, the same word we get our word drugs from. So they didn't repent of their drug taking. And that's, if you wanted to paint a more perfect picture of the world, you couldn't. You couldn't. This world has become very proficient in killing, has made fornication a huge part of its life. Theft is, is all around us. People lie every single day. And drug taking is par for course. But imagine that. Imagine that one third of mankind is killed. Now this is, this is more than one and a half billion people on the planet that are dead by fire, smoke and brimstone. And the remaining two thirds are not changing what they're doing. You know, some people see the coronavirus as a judgment from God. I don't presume to know God's mind. But this judgment is a judgment yet to come. We were talking about a third of the planet dying. What we are experiencing now, Jesus says, is only the beginning of what's called sorrows. Uh, Matthew, <clears throat> turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verse 5. <clears throat> and we'll read uh, Jesus' words about that. Because some people um, become afraid that this is now the end of the world. But this is not the only pandemic that we've had in this world. We've had multiple pandemics, multiple uh, tragedies. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 5, For many shall come in my name. This is right at the end. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. And that's what I'm saying to you. The end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse, diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, God's judgment hasn't fallen upon the earth just yet. What we experience mostly in our world are simply the doing of our own hands. There's a, there's a particular principle that the world can't escape. And that's the principle of sowing and reaping. And we are reaping what we've sown for many, many years. No, we don't sin less than Judah today. In fact, sin has multiplied many times over with the world's increase in population. No, mankind has not stopped sinning, not slowed down in sinning. In fact, sinning is growing exponentially like if you've ever seen the graph of the coronavirus, it, it starts off slow and then it starts to go higher and higher. It's like a deadly virus. The only difference between this world and the world of Judah in Israel in Micah's day is that our sin is more sophisticated, more novel, more hidden. And we have used sophisticated arguments to justify those sins and to relieve our own consciences. The same hypocrisy still exists, though. If there is one lesson we learn from the Bible, it's that man does not change. Despite thousands of years of advancement and technology, our nature remains the same. No man does not change unless he's saved and born again. But the good news of the Bible is that while mankind does not change, you know what? Neither does God. God does not change. And that's good news because his character remains the same throughout. 
Even though Micah and the book of Micah is concerned about the coming judgment of God and the sin of his people, he wrote of God's amazing faithfulness to his covenants with his people, his promises with Israel, and how a remnant would be saved because of him. God pleads with Israel and Judah to turn from their wicked ways and he'll be there to intercede for them. There is no power in the world, whether it was Assyria, whether it was Babylon, he says, turn to me. Those nations are nothing compared to what I can do. If you would just turn to me, no world power can resist him. And the same is true today. If his people would simply turn to him. I like the way um, that Micah records um, uh, the beginning of chapter 6. Because if you turn to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it's God now begins a testimony as if he's in a court of law. And it is. He calls upon the earth to uh, witness what he's arguing. Now listen to these words. He says in Micah chapter 6, verse 1, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise. Contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. God's standing in a court of law, and he's, he's, he's saying to the entire earth, including its very foundations, I want you to witness what I'm about to argue here. I have a problem with my people. We, were, we had an agreement. We had a covenant with each other. And now one party has chosen to renege on that agreement. In fact, what they've done is they've been very deceptive about the whole thing. Judah and Israel continue to sacrifice to him, to God, and play the part of a faithful people, even though they had left God in their hearts. They still gave him bulls and goats and lavished uh, uh, his people, uh, the, the priests or whatever, with the uh, temple with riches and sacrifices. Everything was okay as far as they were concerned. Why should God have a problem with us? We're still uh, sacrificing to him. He should be happy for what we're giving him. You know, if we've sinned with Baal or Ashtaroth or Moloch, he is, if, I, if I sacrifice a bull or a goat, that should be all right. It should keep him happy. But God saw past their hypocrisy. He wasn't fooled by the deceptiveness of their heart as they had been by their own hearts. He calls out their insincerity and pleads with them to recognize and turn from their ways. And he calls on them to testify as well. You, you come and testify. I'll give you my, my side of the story. I want you to come and testify. I want you to tell me your side of the story about why they did not choose to be faithful to the covenant they made with him, to follow his commands. Look, look at what he says in verse 3. He says, O my people, what have I done to thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. What have I done? What have I done that I deserve this? How have I worn you out? How is it you're tired of me? He reminds them that they're his people. That he saved them from, from uh, Egypt. He's only ever done good to them. So what has he done to deserve this treachery? Are they tired of him? Are they simply tired and they've decided to go after other gods to, to get something a bit more exciting? Why have they go chasing after fake gods and false gods and forsaken his own laws? Has he asked too much of them? sound familiar? God could bring the same arguments against the vast majority of people in this world calling themselves Christians. Very few know his word. Very few have ever even read their Bibles or bothered to own one to see what he wants of them, to see if they are living according to his will. Most churches have discarded the Bible altogether. And they're teaching the precepts of man rather than God's will. Most churches are teaching man's wisdom rather than God's. Churches are filled with people that have put their faith in, in, in the teachings of other people and leaders. 
They put their own eternal souls in the hands of their priests, reverends, ministers, bishops, popes and pastors and say, oh, look, I can't be bothered reading it for myself. I'll let them tell me what, what the truth is. I'm happy with them. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to check out what they're telling me. Why would I go uh, questioning what, they, what they're teaching me? Why would you go questioning what they're teaching you? Because everyone teaches something different. And how would you even know whether they're teaching you the truth? It's because people really do not believe in, in, afterlife, in the afterlife. They do not believe in a judgment from God. They do not believe in God. They may call themselves Christians, but at the end of the day, you would never put your eternal soul, if you believed in it, in the hands of someone without questioning what they're telling you. Would you ever do that with a doctor? Would you ever go to a surgeon and actually put your life in their hands without double-checking what they're, what they're telling you? Oh, so, excuse me, I have to amputate your leg because you've got a, uh, a blister on your toe. Well, you'd never, you'd never question that. Of course you would. You're going to lose your leg. But yet when, people, when it comes to eternal life, people put their hands into... They put their lives into the hands of people and they trust them with something much more precious than a leg without ever questioning what they're being told. Amazing. So God brings before them their hypocrisy and their sin by pointing out what he doesn't want, even though they are giving it to him already. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Once again, it begins with a very important question. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God, the only God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Can I come before God with thousands of sacrifices? Come before him with thousands of gifts? Can a person offer their firstborn, their first child, for their own sin? Will he accept that? Can they offer the thing that's the most precious to them? Will that make up for it? Is God pleased with this sort of stuff? Of course, he says no. God is not pleased with sacrifices if those sacrifices are just a cover to clear your conscience and keep, and keep you going the same way. And you can't sacrifice your son to cover your own sin. God hates this stuff. What he saw with Molech, because they were doing the, the very same thing, God hates that. He said, I hate that, that. He doesn't want you sacrificing your children and killing your own children. Can you do that to cover your own sin? No. How can, how can one sin cover another sin? God says, I don't care what you give me from your riches i don't care how much you give me or from the things you prize the most as if somehow god needs your things or any of your riches he doesn't need rams and bulls and goats and 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 sheep and and oil and everything like that. he doesn't need those he owns the entire universe so it'd be foolish to think that somehow i can add to his riches and make him make him uh, uh, uh bless me more because i give him more or that he'll grant me bonus points for my account uh, on how, depending on how much I give him. Oh yeah, if I'm rich, I can give him even more. Hey, he's going to love me even more than that guy down the road who can't give him as much. You know, if you were rich in the days of Judah, you may have offered more than you needed to for your sins. You, may, you might have been the biggest sinner and you know what? I'm going to give him five bulls. That'll keep him happy. In the Middle Ages... The Roman Catholic Church thought it a good idea to start selling indulgences. Selling indulgences. And the word indulgence, you, know, you, you sort of think of, you know, the lavish chocolates and things like that. No, no, they were selling, they were selling forgiveness in, with certificates for people. So if you had a, a family member that had died um, and, and they told you they were in purgatory and paying for their sins in pur the, the rest of their sins that Jesus obviously couldn't pay for in purgatory um, if you paid the church a certain amount of money you'd get a special certificate saying that they could be released from purgatory 
that's a uh, fantastic business model for anyone who wants to um, uh, have a, uh, a dependable source uh, of income. Yes, simply cash for forgiveness. Cash for forgiveness. Even after, you're after you've died. The richer you were, the more your family would benefit in the afterlife. The more money you could give, the more they were blessed. Imagine that. The poor are left to pay for their own sins in purgatory. Already a wrong doctrine anyway. While the rich get an easy ride home. They get, they get a first class ticket uh, to, to heaven. Even though they've done sins, they can... Just pay the, the amount and, and you were guaranteed a free passage to heaven. Amazing. Wonder of wonders. How the church, an earthly institution of made up of men, fallible and sinful men as well, would even know how many sins a person had committed and that were paying for in heaven and they could guarantee them a, a passage or they were paying for in purgatory. This is one of the uh, many false doctrines that Martin Luther protested against with his 95 Theses. God was saying, and it's obviously true. We know it to be true. In our heart of hearts, there's absolutely no way that God is happy with just paying him extra money or doing extra things for him to make up for sin. God was saying it wasn't in the many sacrifices that he found pleasure. He doesn't want that. It wasn't all the offerings that pleased him. The truth is, God doesn't want you sinning in the first place. Sin is abhorrent to Him. It demonstrates your disregard of Him. Rather than loving Him, sin shows how much you really love yourself more than Him. So you can't then come later on and just say, Oh, here, I'll pay you this. Here, just, you know, stop. Don't be upset. Here, I'll give you something. God doesn't want more sacrifices if they're an open door to keep just sinning. It's a bit like saying, you know, they, they create a, a fine if you break the speed limit. So the government, the local government creates a fine system or whatever it is. If you go over 100 kilometres an hour, you know, if you, if you go over 110, you might get a $150 fine or $200 fine or $300 fine. I don't know what that is. Is the purpose of that just to make money? Or is the purpose of that law to keep people running at a safe distance? Well, if you're sceptical about everything, you might say, oh, I just want to make money. But logically, they don't want people running around at 200 kilometres an hour. As we saw just recently, a fellow was running down the freeway at 140 kilometres an hour, and now we have four dead police. No, the purpose of the law is for the safety of people. And when God gives his laws, they're for the benefit of his, of his people. And yet people are more than happy to break them and say, look, I'll pay the fine, I don't care. But God says, I don't want you to pay the fines. I don't want you to keep paying fines and then blame me as well. I want you to follow my rules because they're for your safety. And if you break my rules, you're showing a, a complete disregard for my authority. And you obviously don't care. People have ways of doing things to appease God in their lives when they have sin in their lives. They have ways of doing things for God that might appease their own consciences. They might do certain things to maybe win the approval of men and make themselves feel good. People have ways of making themselves feel better in the midst of their sin. And God says, be careful about that. That's hypocrisy. If you're doing good things, offering sacrifices, rivers of oil, they might, you might not offer bulls and goats and, and, uh, and sheep on an altar, but what are you offering God to appease your own conscience? Jesus warned about the hypocrites of his day when he spoke about the most important thing being the motive of the heart. Even when we're doing things that are supposed to be good and holy. You see, 
The heart, remember, is deceitful above all things. It can take that thing which is actually perfectly good and corrupt it to the point where it's useless. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at three examples of how men have been able to corrupt something good with wrong motives. Matthew chapter 6 verse 1. We're going to look at giving first. It says, take heed that you do not your arms before men, which means don't go and give you, don't go giving to the poor in front of other people to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your father, which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine arms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest the arms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine arms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Giving can be manipulated to make people feel good about themselves. I wonder if those people who were giving money for the praise of everyone else around them did it in a way or were forced to do it in a way that people couldn't see what was going on. I wonder how much they would actually give then. But is that true of us? What do we give that we like the praises of men for? The next one he gives as an answer or uh, an example is prayer. It says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites. Don't do like those people. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, when you pray, enter into thy closet, enter into a, a, a confined space. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is in secret. And thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. But when you pray... Use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask of him. I've heard some florally prayers before, but this is talking about people who love to show off with their prayers. And to th and think that if I pray for long, long periods of time, repeating the same things over and over, you see, we often look at this thing, and we, you know, coming from a Catholic background, um, we look at the, you know, the Hail Mary and the Our Father, and and sometimes I'll repeat those prayers over and over and over and over and over again, which is really, well, this 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 uh, passage completely destroys that whole thing. God doesn't care about the number of words you speak when it comes to prayer. It's as if somehow the, the more words you say, the more effect they're going to have on God. This is not a spinning wheel in a, in a, in a, in a temple over there in, in the Himalayas. You just keep on spinning and spinning and spinning and think that it's actually, it's actually going to benefit you. God says, don't use vain repetitions. But this also applies to people who just keep on repeating the same thing over and over again in 50 different ways. It's not the amount of words God says. God says, it's not the amount of words that matter. It's about your heart towards me. Because God says, I already know what you're going, to, what you need before you even ask it. Just ask it. Don't have to ask in a thousand different ways. And finally, turn to verse 16. So you can, you can corrupt giving, you can corrupt prayer. And now you can even corrupt fasting. In verse 16, it says, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. They make themselves look sad and disfigured. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou may appear not unto men to fast. You're supposed to cover it up. You're supposed to actually not try and cover up that you're actually fasting. But unto thy father, which is in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. And look, these are only three examples. 
and you can corrupt. If you can corrupt good things like this, like fasting, prayer and giving, you can corrupt almost anything. People always have a tendency to, to corrupt every good thing because of this deceptive heart that resides within every person. And if people can corrupt giving, praying and fasting, they can, they can corrupt anything. Beware of your true motives in doing things. And I'll add another couple to the list because these may apply to us even more today. Going to church. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed when people come to church. I'm blessed when I see people watching these particular um, live streams. I'm glad that we can do it when we can't meet together physically. But even going to church can be corrupted. It can be a pretext for pleasing others around you. Going to church may be a way to make you feel good just about yourself. It, may, it could be simply um, because you like the friendship of others in church and the benefits that come from having this group of people around you. It could be because you're paying God back for the guilt that you experience. Going to church could be something that's good that's being corrupted. Reading the Bible can be corrupted. Reading the Bible could simply be a way of you paying God, of offering those rivers of oil and that to him. Oh, he'll be pleased with me if I read, you know, 10,000 words in a day. But it's not the number of words that God really cares about. Or maybe you want to read the Bible and become knowledgeable so you can show off in front of other people. Or maybe to save yourself from being embarrassed if someone asks you a question, you don't know the answer to it. You want to sound smart enough, you know. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to argue better if you become more knowledgeable. Maybe to feel better about yourself because you see other people around you not reading the Bible at all, so you feel superior to them. I'm not saying that any of us does this in particular. What I'm saying is beware of our motives because the heart is deceptive above all things. God says it isn't in the quantity but the quality. And that's true about spiritual life. It's your heart that God is most interested in and most people's hearts aren't filled with God but with themselves. They may go to church, they may pray, they may read God's word but their hearts may still be far from God. People still disregard the passages of the Bible they don't want to listen to because it may affect them too much. They may focus on the parts of the Bible that make them feel good about themselves. If any generation epitomizes this, it's the generation that we're living in today. We pick and choose what we want. And we pick the things that make us feel good, look good. We have a tendency to minimize God's commands and, re commands and replace them with our own. So let me ask you this morning. Is God's assessment of mankind correct? If you answered yes, then will you look at whether this assessment is true of you? Will you examine your own hearts, as the scriptures tell us, to examine ourselves daily? To see whether we are in the faith, genuinely in the faith. Where is your heart this morning? Why do you do the things that you do? If it comes from a heart of thanksgiving and love for God, then God bless you. Keep it up. And keep, but always be vigilant against the deceptiveness of your, of your old nature. The old nature that we have still with us is a truly wicked thing. It will always seek to have its own way at our expense. It hates the new nature that God's planted within us. It hates it. Those two things are opposed to each other. The old flesh and the spirit are two things which are constantly in battle with one another. Let's not let our old nature deceive us, as most of the world is already deceived. Don't give in to it. See it for what it really is and recognize it in the people, in the lives of people around you. We are called 
as Christians to battle with it and to win. We are not called to battle to lose. Just as Israel was called to go into the promised land and to defeat the armies of the, the, of the people that were living there already because God was going ahead of them. The promise to us is that we are to win against this thing and not allow it to take hold of our lives again. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things which are sinful things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. This fight is our fight. The world don't fight against their old nature. As a Christian, because you've been you've been given a new nature by God, now that is the time that we've entered into this promised land to fight this fight. And by the grace of God, we will win day by day because the battles continue day by day and the war will continue. And this enemy will not disappear until we are given brand new bodies and glorified and the old nature is finally washed away. But we can defeat this enemy that lurks even within us if we recognize it. And sin is the flesh's main weapon against us. We would do very well to avoid the bullets of this sin as much as we possibly can. And maybe we can learn a valuable lesson from the way the governments are trying to stop the spread of this pandemic in this world, the coronavirus. From a worldly point of view, we are called to practice social distancing. And for the most part, Australians seem to be doing very well because the numbers are, are looking quite promising. But if only Christians would practice social distancing with sin, or maybe we should call it iniquity distancing, let's keep away from, from it as much as we possibly can, because sin is a killer. It's more deadly than the coronavirus. It has almost a 100% strike rate. And people are infected with it unless they go to the physician of Christ, unless they go to a doctor and, and receive God's medical treatment, they will die. And not just die physically, but die spiritually as well forever. That death is permanent. So what, how do we guard ourselves against this? Well, believe every word that you read in the Word of God, that you read in the Bible. Treat the Bible like a medical journal. That's perfectly true and trustworthy with regards to your eternal soul and the health of your physical and spiritual well-being. Follow the rules that it gives you in order to lead a safe and healthy life with the Lord. You see, in the bottom line, God wants us to have a healthy relationship with him. He doesn't want a destroyed relationship. He doesn't want a strained relationship. God doesn't care about all the other sacrifices that you think you may have to make to God to make him uh, happy with you. He doesn't want all that. He's done all that for you already when he sent his son to pay for, that, for those sins. If you're saved this morning, your relationship with the Lord should be the most important thing. If you're not saved this morning, then you don't have a relationship with the Lord and you are simply being swept around by wherever your flesh tells you to go. And there has to be a beginning to that relationship if you want that with God. In order to begin that relationship, you must come to him on his terms through Christ. There is only one way that God has made for you to walk through and have that initial conversation and have that initial fellowship and restoration and that's through jesus christ and that's by faith in him so this morning my invitation is to everyone who doesn't believe ask the question find out how to begin that relationship with god how to be saved and redeemed because jesus christ went to a cross to pay for your sins that you may have that redemption and begin that relationship the bible simply says to repent of your sin 
Repent of your old life and receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. And he'll save you and give you a new nature. Then you can start fighting. If you're saved this morning, then keep up the good fight. Remember to trust his word always and always be on guard against our old nature because it is deceptive above all things. Next week, we look at the good things God wants us to do that help to keep a healthy relationship with him. God bless you all. I pray that you have a wonderful week. I pray that during this week you grow closer to the Lord, you grow more mature, more godly, and more like Christ. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.